0: My name is Oliver Garner, and welcome to the latest RevDEM podcast. Our guest today is Professor Petra Bard, who is one of the heads of the Rule of Law section of the Review of Democracy, alongside Professor Dmitry Kochinov. Petra is a lecturer in the Law Department of the Central European University, as well as being an associate professor at the utvush laurent University in Budapest. She is also one of the work package leads for the ReConnect project, which seeks to reconcile citizens with the European Union through law and democracy. The topic of our conversation today will be rule of law budget conditionality. This is perhaps the most salient and contemporary issue in the ongoing rule of law debate, after the coming into force on the 1st of January of a new regulation which creates a sharp tool in the EU's Rule of Law Enforcement Toolbox to complement pre-existing mechanisms. So welcome, Petra, to our Rev podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you. Good
1: morning. Thank you for the kind invitation.
0: So on Monday, the 25th of January, the CEU Democracy Institute held an event on this topic of rule of law budget conditionality. And this brought together Commissioner Didier Reinders, uh, MEP Catalin Scheer, and Professor Laurent Peck. All of the participants during that event discussed the possibility that this new regulation could be a game changer in the rule of law crisis. Petra, do you believe that the regulation will achieve greater compliance with EU values where other mechanisms have failed in the last five years? And if so, why do you think the regulation will be more effective?
1: Uh, well, I think that the European Union, even under the current treaty configurations and even before the regulation has been adopted, was already a rule of law actor, relying on a set of policy and, and legal instruments, assessing member states' compliance uh, with values such as the rule of law, democracy and fundamental rights that are all enshrined in Article 2 of the Treaty on the European Union. So the EU already possesses important tools to counter rule of law problems. Now, the Copenhagen dilemma, namely that uh, member states uh, to be are screened against these values before they accede to the European Union, but not once they join the club, it exists on the one hand because these mechanisms are scattered and they have this patchwork nature, Uh, So they are not uh, regular, for example, annual, based on a very clear methodology, um, not always contextual, and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, and and I think it's even more important, there is an unwillingness on the side of institutions to make use of the already um, existing tools. And some scholars, they even argue that the new tools, um, and there are many, this is not just the conditionality regulation. So the new tools uh, that are allegedly there to enforce or um, in some other cases, just to monitor the rule of law are only adopted in an attempt to give the full semblance that the EU does something against rule of law backsliding. And actually it's only there to build European inaction. I'm not saying that the conditionality regulation is such an instrument uh, to build EU in action. All I say is that it's not a magic tool to solve all the rule of law issues in the EU, but this is a promising one. Uh, but we should recognise, uh, already with regard to, um, to to conditionality and connecting the rule of law to to the question of money, that there there is already, and even before the the regulation, there was already another one, the Common Provisions Regulation from 20. 20- 13, according to which the commission could have suspended European structural and investment funds where a, where a member state um, did not uphold uh, the rule of law. So instead of making better use of this tool, now European institutions came up with a general rule of law conditionality. I mean, it does have potential because it's regular. It has a clear methodology. It clearly states what the rule of law is and what the expectations are. So it does have potential. Uh, But I don't think that this is the instrument or, in fact, any other instrument could solve all the rule of law problems in the European Union.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Petra. It's very interesting to hear that there is a pre-existing legacy of such instruments. And, you know, we may see a situation where it's a repackaging rather than a complete new creation. And I suppose In fact, if
1: I may, if I may interrupt, this is very, very interesting because according uh, to the new regulation, the existing ones have to be uh, applied first. Okay. So maybe uh, the new instrument will actually lead to a revival of the 2013 regulation. We don't know, but we'll see.
0: That's fascinating. And yes, no, it's it's, it's good to know that there is this pre-existing legacy. And how, of course, all of these tools should be used. Um, Discussing there the potential strategic effects of such a mechanism, I suppose one of the observations would be if you hit actors in their pockets, that's where it hurts the most. And indeed, Commissioner Reinders stated during the event last Monday that from his political experience, financial pressure can be very important. My question to you is whether you believe that there is a risk that citizens, when they hear rhetoric like this, may see the regulation as an attempt to buy rule of law compliance by the EU, in effect, a transactional relationship with reticent member states where their compliance with the rule of law is predicated purely on financial incentives. And if you think that there is this risk, do you believe that this undermines the idea of EU values?
1: Excellent question, thank you very much, but I would still reverse it if you allow. <laughs> so does it not undermine the European idea that illiberal non-democratic regimes are being built from EU money in sharp contrast to EU values? So should we, uh, should we be allowed to continue the approach followed so far and not attach dissuasive legal consequences to systemic violations of the rule of law? it will have severe consequences primarily for the member state in question because life in a democracy is much happier than in a non-democracy uh, but also uh, the effects of rule of law backsliding extend way beyond the borders of of the problem child uh, of the european union so beyond the borders of the liberal states and they spill over uh, to the european union as a quasi-federal entity as well so they do Endanger the concept of liberal democracy, both in the domestic setting and in the EU as well. Just let me give you a a number of examples. Should elections not be fair in a member state, um, um, representatives that were elected um, in in such a procedure will contaminate, so to say, the EU's lawmaking process. Mm -hmm. Or if uh, rule of law backsliding is not, responded to if it's not uh, followed suit then 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 the other member states may just uh may just uh, copy actually what what an illiberal state is is doing and rule of law backsliding may become contagious so as uh, as as you say one one rotten apple may spoil the whole barrel uh, this is what happens with regard to to rule of law uh, backsliding as well and essential presumptions behind eu law such as mutual trust and mutual recognition will not hold um, which are based on the presumption that every state is is every member state is a state based on the rule of law and everyone will get a fair trial by an independent judiciary. Now, if this doesn't hold anymore, then uh, mutual recognition based instruments in criminal law or in asylum law will simply collapse, and we are already witnessing this this happening. Uh, there are German and um, and Dutch courts which are unwilling to extradite to surrender people to other countries with systemic rule of law problems because they don't want to become complicit Mm -hmm. uh, in the proliferation of rule of law abuses and and gross violations of individual rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think one way or another, um, these illiberal states are poisoning the Mm -hmm. European project. and And then it's more consequential not to finance them out of EU taxpayers' money than to do it.
0: Yeah, I think what you said there is exactly what my thought process was when you say about it being uh, kind of in terms of the consequences, the balance. Maybe there's a utilitarian bargain here in a sense. It's uh, maybe a lesser of two evils that the situation is such an emergency now that you know this idea maybe damage to the perception of values as being transactional. Maybe that's a price worth paying to uh, address how serious the situation has become and you mentioned there about the the rotten apples and that leads on to my next question because the european commission and the member states in the european council especially during the contentious meeting in the middle of december have been very cautious to stress that the regulation will apply and does apply equally to all member states rather than this being seen as another measure or kind of a weapon against Hungary and Poland in this ongoing Mm -hmm. political dispute. Do you think that the institutions will be successful in showing that this is a regulation that applies equally to all member states, not just Hungary and Poland? And how do you believe that things such as the commission guidelines could be drafted in order to ensure such an equality of application?
1: I do believe that there is a sincere attempt on the side of the institutions to make it a a tool that is equally uh, applied to all the member states. Uh, Now, of course, this should be communicated to the people uh, all over uh, the European Union, including the citizens of the liberal states. Uh, But one shouldn't overdo it, because one way or another, the tool will be presented by the illiberals as an ideological uh, uh tool uh, whereby the european union is trying to impose on them a certain ideologies certain policies with regard to migration or with regard to other issues um, that um, and, and that will be easily communicated to the people especially in countries where there is already a, already a captured media so I don't think that the European Union has the tools to fight this fight it should it should try of course it should give it a give it a try to to communicate well uh, but I still I, I firmly believe that it's, it will be misconceived anyway um, by, uh, by the illiberals. Um, and and what, I, what I have seen so far uh, on the side of European institutions and EU politicians is that they try to um, compensate uh, this illiberal rhetoric too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in communicating uh, to the public. So for example, um, Vera Yurova, when um, presenting the 2020 annual rule of law report, uh, she emphasized that uh, not only Eastern or Central Eastern European states, but also Western states have rule of law problems. And then she came up with the example of uh, of Germany, uh, that is uh, that was uh, held to be in in violation of EU law in the sense that prosecutors' offices could issue European arrest warrants. But this is not a rule of law problem. This was misframed by by Commissioner Jurova, with all due respect as a rule of law problem. But this was an implementation problem on the side of the of the German authorities uh, because uh as we know it's perfectly legitimate for a prosecutor's office uh, to be hierarchical and to be very much dependent uh, on the executive that's okay if the executive has some influence over over prosecutors they mustn't have an influence over the judiciary but over prosecutors that's okay It's only that such prosecutors will not be independent enough for the sake of EU law to issue European arrest warrants, but that's an implementation problem. And I think in an attempt just to search for some Western rule of law issues, uh, she named this example, which is very much regrettable, uh, I think. So if if, if this is a um, problem currently under the current configurations of Central Eastern uh, European states, that can clearly be stated that it is, uh, and I and I think a spade should should be called called a spade anyway. I, as I said, um, <clears throat> the um, uh, the mechanisms, the procedures will be abused. Uh, looking at the rule of law report again, it gives a ten some page or yeah um, a lengthy analysis of all the member states, and it gives about ten to twenty pages about every member state. Uh, so, what the Hungarian and the Polish governments are claiming is that we have equal problems because we have almost equal length analysis uh, uh, of our rule of law problems. There's even a dedicated website to Western rule of law problems uh, if, if if you check the Hungarian Justice Minister's uh, Facebook page. and Then she talks about minorities treatment in Finland and she talks about the Netherlands, how they abolished referenda and what uh, systemic problems these are that are comparable or even much greater than the uh, than the Hungarian ones. And uh, so, you know, it will be abused, and it will be, uh, th- there will be an audience that is respondent to this misconstruction of uh, of European attempts to restore the rule of law. Um, there will be people who will believe that the rule of law doesn't exist, it's just a blah blah, it's just um. I was quoting a prime minister here sorry, Um, uh, they will believe that there are double standards being used but there is um, a a, a huge group of people and this is uh, almost a majority, a simple majority of the the voters uh, who cannot translate their votes into, um, um, into power because of a distorted election system. Uh, but those who do believe in the values that the EU and the member states are supposed to share. And the EU action would correspond to the expectation of these citizens from the backsliding states who had high hopes to join the West, not only economically, but also in terms of democracy, the rule of law and fundamental rights. So people, I believe, not only hoped for economic well-being, but also a check uh, that would make sure that the the road to democracy becomes irreversible. Mm. Um, So when we talk about um, um, European Union rhetoric and tools being abused or being presented, we shouldn't forget this huge body of, of, of people and actually voters who currently uh, feel to be left alone because they do not see effective and dissuasive responses to rule of law backsliding on the side of EU institutions.
0: Yes and I think that is where we have the crucial niche in a sense for democratic studies because as we will come on to discuss there's of course the crucial role that democracy and elections can play at the national level in this crisis. And you mentioned in your answer there about the the rule of law reports, and perhaps as an example of this, uh, I wouldn't want to say appeasement, but definitely this striving for equivalence (laughs) to ensure almost a diplomatic balance. And the rule of law reports were actually discussed by Commissioner Reinders last week, as, uh, as he believed it, a positive innovation coming out of 2019 and he was optimistic about reform proposals in I think he mentioned Malta as an example that have come directly from these reports so my question to you Petra is how do you think the the rule of law reports which will be issued on an iterative basis now and the new regime of budget conditionality will interact together do you think that soft law and hard law mechanisms will complement one another moving forward or will there be a clash
1: I think that the two mechanisms should be complementary. Uh, They are not interchangeable. The one is designed for monitoring, and the other is designed to attach consequences uh, to rule of law backsliding. And of course, you cannot. impose sanctions or legal consequences to backsliding without actually first having a very thorough analysis of what is happening in a member state so in that regard I also believe that the annual rule of law report is a, is a very promising exercise this is um, you know learning uh, learning by doing so um, also the Commission already so um, and 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 um, responded to the criticism well um, namely that certain uh, issues have been downplayed or not even mentioned uh, by the rule of law reports. It gave rise to what about as I just earlier mentioned, uh, because it gives the semblance that rule of law problems of an equal nature are, ev- are everywhere. So it should be highlighted in the re- in the reports much uh, in a much uh, clearer way uh, when there is a systemic rule of law backsliding in one country and when there is just, and I say in quotation mark, just, set of uh, deep problems but which are not systemic um, in other member states uh, now my worry with regard to annual rule of law report is that uh, and and with the whole approach of the Commission actually so far uh, is that it emphasizes that um, uh, response to um, meaning sanctions or legal consequences attached to backsliding, they must be a last resort. And they always demand for more dialogue. Mm -hmm. Now, this might indeed work uh, with the member states that respect the rules of the game um, and in the overall assessment adhere to the concept of liberal democracy. But when it comes to systemic rule of law backsliding, the strength of any EU reaction would depend on the response prong, attaching dissuasive consequences early enough to systemic and deliberate the rule of law. More dialogue will just not help. It will only assist notorious rule of law violations to complete their constitutional capture. It will just give them sufficient time to complete capture. Uh, so there should be room, of course, for member states under the review to present their arguments and, and their pieces of evidence underpinning their points. But when it becomes clear that the government acts in bad faith, the commission should acknowledge that further so-called dialogue leads nowhere. Uh, it just leads uh, to a dialogue of the deaf, um, as some scholars called it. And uh, and the proposals, adding a bite to the bark, uh, typically start with quasi um, economic sanctions. These are the ones that are the most promising. So I would reverse the whole thing that the commission propagates in the rule of law blueprint and in earlier documents, namely that the response prong should be the last resort. No, we should, Clearly uh, um, discuss and, and um, explain what consequences may be attached to the rule of law backsliding, and then reverse the order. And in light of these responses, engage in a dialogue. And if, um, and if it's not meaningful, there should be a, a, a halt uh, put to, uh, to the debate. Uh, time is an absolutely crucial factor. So um, um, these procedures should be accelerated, as I said, giving enough chance to the member state under scrutiny to present its position, but then interfere um, fast enough so that uh, so that the, the, the capture or, or or the measures by the government could still be reversed. And if necessary, interim measures uh, should also be imposed. And when it comes to the actual um, instruments, it's not only that the sanctions um, need to be emphasized, which should be dissuasive. But also when I talk about legal consequences in general, I believe that there is a need to suspend certain legal instruments uh, that are based on the presumption that every state is a state based on the rule of law so as not to destroy um, the whole construct that we call the EU's legal system.
0: Thank you. It's fascinating to hear your perspective on how you think the mechanisms would function in an optimal manner. I think perhaps we can detect a certain tension between the political and the legal limb of constitutional processes and the different functions these should have. And I think your response was quite evocative of a concern that Katalin Sher expressed last week, where she said that If the new regulation is just another piece of paper for legal scholars to study, then it won't change anything. So the question I had for you, Petra, deriving from that kind of interesting piece of of rhetoric is whether you believe there is now an overabundance of rule of law mechanisms Mm -hmm. in the EU. And to put it in simple terms, do you think that there are too many tools in the box?
1: Oliver, you will excuse me if I cannot pass by at Miss Chess, uh, (laughs) dig at Legal Scholars. Um, I think that this brainstorming exercise about what works and what doesn't work against abuse of power is a joint responsibility of law and policymakers, civil society society scholars and, and and various other segments of, of society. So Dimitri Kochanov's biting into governmentalism, uh, meaning starting infringement procedures by one member state against another member state for rule of law backsliding, is currently being tested uh, by the Dutch government. Um, so perhaps the Dutch will just act uh, of, um, of the commission, which is supposed to be uphold uh, the treaties. Uh, also, if you look at Professor Kim Lane um, uh systemic infringement procedures, or the idea of systemic uh, approach to infringement procedures, um, I, I wish it would also soon be tested this time by the Commission. Um, Anna Schleizinska and myself we propose to have all rule of law related infringement procedures automatically accelerated, prioritized, and interim measures uh, should be used. And the the court in most cases is already doing that. So I think this is a um, this is a common exercise uh, um, that we are doing here and. Um, um, and I think it's mutually beneficial to listen to each other. When it comes to your actual question about the tools, um, yes, now there is a proliferation of tools, uh, and most of them are there for monitoring, for benchmarking, um, uh, for overviewing uh, the um, the state of the rule of law in the member states. Uh, I think there are fair enough indices and indicators and, and mechanisms to do that already within and 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 outside the European Union's framework, so we don't need yet another monitoring tool. Neither do we need uh, yet another tool for a di- for a dialogue. We have many. We have this dialogue in the framework of basically an Article Seven one procedure. We rarely talk about this, but this is not a sanctioning procedure. This is just a platform for a dialogue between European institutions and the member states, which is set to risk uh, um, Article. Uh, Two values. Um, then we have the rule of law framework as introduced by the commission. Then there is also a dialogue peer review mechanism in the council. So I think we should we choose, we should just stop reproducing these platforms for dialogue. This is this is simply not helpful. We have seen with regard to the commission's rule of law framework, for example, that they initiated a discussion about Poland's constitutional tribunals in independence, um, the commission came up with new and new recommendations uh, to the Polish government, but since they didn't speak the same language of constitutionalism uh, and, and, and of liberal democracy, uh, what happened was that all these recommendations were disregarded, um, the, the deadlines for complying with the recommendations were extended again and again, and even before before the procedure would have come to an end, um, the independence of the Constitutional Tribunal was already gone, so um, so I, I wish that there were more um, exercises uh, that actually attach consequences uh, to rule of law backsliding. This is what we would need, and there is one instrument we haven't yet talked about because this is yet in, in the pipeline, so it's not yet adopted, but the European Parliament's Um, um, resolution on the democracy rule of law and fundamental rights pact is something like like that that would combine on the one hand a very um, thorough uh, monitoring exercise uh, which is also methodologically correct. It's a qualitative contextual exercise that they are proposing there on the basis of equality of the member state and is also uh, an annual so a regular um, uh, process and then there are automatic consequences attached to the finding that a member state departed from the path uh, of the rule of law. So, so I think this is a nice combination. Uh, so far what we have seen is that instead of um, of supporting this initiative. Uh, all the institutions came up with their own rule of law monitoring exercises. I wish that there was an interinstitutional joint effort uh, to, to create um, a, a regular rule of law supervision mechanism with proper uh, follow-up
0: too. Well, perhaps we are seeing a shift, in a sense, away from the the dialogue mechanisms towards enforcement mechanisms, because Commissioner Reinders stressed that rule of law budget conditionality, the new regime, can, in his opinion, work in tandem with mechanisms such as the European Prosecutors' uh, the EPPO, the new European Public Prosecutors' Office. And so my my question for you is, on the basis of your expertise and research in criminology, do you believe that greater powers at the EU level to address criminal behaviour will affect citizens' perceptions of the EU's legitimacy? Um, To give a concrete example, a proposal came up during the discussion last week of of a blacklist of individuals who have been found guilty of misusing EU funds in the past. Do you believe this would increase support for EU action, these increased powers, or would there be a backlash against greater supranationalisation?
1: I agree. I think that the EPPO might indeed increase citizens' trust in the European Union and in how their money is being spent. Of course, several problem children, uh, from the rule of law perspective, they failed to to join the European Public Prosecutor's Office, and they cannot be forced to sign in since the treaties foresee enhanced cooperation in that regard. It means that some member states that wish to engage in closer cooperation can do so within the treaty framework, uh, but they need to respect the rights of the member states that opted out. Um, So I think that the role of uh, OLAF, the European Anti-Fraud Office, uh, could, for example, be strengthened in this regard. At the minimum, the findings of OLAF could be publicly shared when the member states are irresponsive to the mischiefs, indicated in those reports. So, I can imagine a system where the general rule is that they are still confidential, but once there is not sufficient follow-up on the side of the member state to these OLAF reports, then they are getting published. Mm. Uh, Also, an EU mechanism could be introduced which can lead to EU consequences attached to OLAF findings of corruption, Um, autonomously, um, irrespectively uh, of uh, whether the member states are prosecuting these offices. Yes, I I do agree, these are all promising uh, proposals that are also viable within the current treaty framework, so you wouldn't need to change the Mm. treaties to make that happen.
0: I'd like to return now to a theme that came up earlier in our discussion and one that I think is crucial for uh, listeners and readers of the Review of Democracy platform. And it it is about the role that democracy and elections can play in this ongoing values crisis. And this relates to an argument that was made that ultimately the only real game changer in this crisis will be citizens voting in the next elections on whether to continue supporting nationalist anti-EU governments or instead, to show support for candidates whose values more closely cohere with the EU institutions' ideas of values such as the rule of law and democracy and fundamental rights. So, my question is what would be your key argument on the basis of your experience to voters, such as in the upcoming elections in Hungary, about why it would be in their interest to vote for candidates who will more closely cohere? With the EU's vision of the foundational values?
1: Yes, I, I think it's a legi- legitimate concern um, on the side of European taxpayers mm. um, and all European citizens that um, autocracies are being built from their money. Uh, lack of politics is simply not helpful here. So I think that the debate itself should be more politicized. Whereas the rule of law uh, monitoring exercise and also the supervision on behalf of the EU is a legal one. Um, the, the persuasion of the people is to engage, is about to engage them more politically. Just let me give you a, a, a metaphor or a, or a parallel example. Uh, to what happened uh, in the EU context and what happened in the national context, when uh, certain um, mainstream politicians were cooperating with radicals. In uh, in the national setting in Germany, voters heavily punished the CDU CSU for cooperating with the right wing radical IFD party. Uh, in the election of a certain politician, so voters they reacted immediately uh, to um, to um, reaching out uh, to the right, uh, to the extreme right. I mean, when the same thing happened before the election of the current Commission president, and the same German parties had to cooperate with the extremist Hungarian government, uh the same voters, the same German voters couldn't care less. Mm, yeah. Because Hungary is just too remote, it's too far away, their problems are not seen to be European problems, even though as we discussed at the beginning of our conversation, they are very, very vivid problems for the European Union as well. But this is just simply not seen, it's not acknowledged, it's not transmitted, it's not translated to European voters. Therefore, they they are just ignorant towards uh, these political games that are being there. And when the current commission president was elected with the votes of these um, representatives of, of, uh, if I may say, non-democracies, Uh, then then the vote was celebrated as a great success of European unity. Mm. So I think more political engagement, um, of course, is is beneficial in this regard.
0: That naturally segues very well onto my final question, because your discussion there of a failure to translate the salience of issues in one member state to another is obviously one of the key malaises that the ReConnect project seeks to address. Uh, a project which uh, both you and I collaborate together within. And so, yes, my my final question is on on the basis of your role as as the lead of the ReConnect work package that formulates recommendations to address this disconnect, what would be the one reform to the treaties that, that you would propose, say, in an ideal world, where there are no constraints of the need for consensus between member states. What would be that one reform that you believe would address the values crisis in the EU if indeed there can be a reform to the treaties that would serve such a function?
1: Very interesting question. Uh, and uh, there is a pl- preliminary question to that, namely, which value should be addressed if we only had one goal uh, for, for a treaty change? Um, and here we should recognize that the rule of law, democracy and fundamental rights, they are interdependent. So one cannot function uh, without the other. The rule of law without democracy is a contradiction, democracy without the rule of law may turn into the dictatorship of the majority. Um, And also uh, both the rule of law and and, and democracy can be translated into human rights. Uh, Just take for example, judicial independence, which can be construed as a rule of law problem, but at the same time, from the perspective of the individual, this is also a right to a fair trial issue. Um, or uh, just think about democracy, uh, which can also be translated to access to information, right to information and freedom of speech as well. So I'm not saying that all rule of law problems could be translated into the rights language and they shouldn't. Um, but if I if I had one go, t- taking into consideration that many issues can be um, Approached also from the right language, and I'm coming from this background of being particularly concerned about individual rights. So I had, if I had this magic wand and could make one single change to the primary sources of EU law, I would simply abolish Article 51 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights so that all Charter rights become directly applicable and justiciable in all the member states. So such a move would perhaps make the Charter become a union standard, so to say, uh, and it would be um, eventually applicable irrespective of the subject matter to the case, um, whether a certain subject matter falls into the EU competence or not.
0: Thank you so much, Petra. Well, I hope that such an interesting reform proposal will obviously form the basis for further conversations going forward, not only within the Reconnect project, but on the Revtem platform as well. And so I'd like to thank you very much for, for joining us as, as the guest this week. And I should also thank you for providing something of a, of a teaser trailer for our next podcast in the series. As you mentioned, Dmitry, Professor Kochenov's Biting into Governmentalism, which will indeed be the topic of our, of our next podcast. So thank you so much again, Petra, for, for joining us. And we look forward to engaging further on these questions for RevDem in the future.
1: Thank you very much, Charlie Burke. it was a pleasure.